thought-leading insights on data and analytics in the healthcare space. This is Healthcare Analytics Decoded, a podcast by Quantros. Um, excited here to be here today and to welcome Dr. Richard Pinson, who is a well-known uh, physician coding and consulting expert, and would love to, to start by just having him talk a little bit about who he is, his background, uh, and the work he is currently doing. So Dr. Pinson, why don't we start there? Hi, Lindsay, and thank you very much. Um, Yes, uh, I practiced emergency medicine after four years of internal medicine uh, residency. Uh, I practiced emergency medicine for about 20 years. And uh, shortly after that, I began this work in documentation improvement, coding, educating uh, physicians, coders, documentation specialists, and uh, generally... uh, working in that field almost entirely now, but uh, got quite a strong background in internal medicine and a broad, uh, broad view of uh, other clinical things. So um, it's uh, a great pleasure to be invited to participate in this, and I hope I can contribute something meaningful. Wonderful. I, I'm certain of that. So um Today, we really want to focus on your perspective, uh, clearly given your background, I think you're really uh, well-suited to, to share on the current COVID pan- pandemic, and in particular, um, what has surprised you, what, what maybe hasn't surprised you, and then in a few minutes, we'll kind of shift to what do you think this means for healthcare moving forward? So maybe let's start with kind of what has and hasn't surprised you about about this pandemic? Well, uh, frankly, I think uh, the surprising thing is the uh, the rapidity with which this virus spreads through the population, how infectious it is, um, and how many patients may be asymptomatic, uh, kind of unlike the flu, most people do develop symptoms. So uh, it's been a very rapid spread, uh, and uh, while uh, we don't really know how deadly it is because we are only scratching the surface of all the infected people because we're unable to test, we've got a huge reservoir of people who have had infection that it were, were never reported. So that's going to lower death rates substantially. Um, what also surprised me is the uh, really excess fear that was generated uh, in the population by this, uh, as if this were a mass extinction event. And uh, the, the deaths primarily occur in, in people who are very old and very sick uh, and would die from uh, other types of stress. So that's not too unexpected uh, in a a population like this that has no uh, immunity. Uh, One other, um, uh, one thing that does not surprise me is that uh, this, once again, this pandemic arose in China where people are packed together uh, almost shoulder to shoulder uh, in association with uh, 
animals that harbor various viruses. We've seen this happen before with the first SARS virus. Um, and uh, the shocking thing is the slow response uh, to this that allowed it to uh, break loose. Once, a, once an infection like this gets loose in a uh, very highly populated, uh, unprotected, uh, non-immune species, the, uh, the impact is profound uh, on that group. So I think that's not surprising. On that last point, do you think that changes anything moving forward in terms of identification of a situation like this earlier and an earlier response? I certainly hope it does. I think in a number of countries that would have happened. Uh, Lord, uh, help us all, the whole world, uh, expecting China to recognize that and not let this happen again, because China is really the ideal breeding ground for these new uh, infectious pathogens which will be mainly viral. And I think we're going, this is going to keep happening now on a regular basis. This is going to be part of the new normal that we are going to see uh, viral infections in these highly densely populated areas. It could happen in India just as well. Um, but these areas are breeding grounds for these types of pandemics, pandemic viruses and uh they will continue to cross species like this and always have for as long as humans and animals have been in close association. So part of the new normal is being on the lookout for these things and uh, expecting them to keep happening. So pandemics like this may, you know, return as uh, they used to affect the world before we had antibiotics with things like, uh, the plague and smallpox. We're going to see a resurgence of that type of thing. Mm -hmm. It's kind mm -hmm. of scary. It is scary, you know, and I think you're right, though. It's how do we move forward in whatever new normal that is and not be gripped by fear that that those things are a possibility? Um, you know, and so the questions I ask a lot is, one, what can I as an individual do? But two, you know, what is the U.S. healthcare system or the U.S. policymaking system potentially doing to protect us or at least adjust the way we operate to potentially be a little bit more, more prepared or, or more ready for these types of events? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I, that's a very good question. I think some of this may still be evolving because actually we're just sort of at the beginning. We're just beginning to learn what all the impact, what all the outcome is. We're going to have, we, we really haven't had a chance to study what's happened already and what additional measures might be beneficial. So it's going to continue to evolve uh, uh, quite a bit, but I think we're learning a lot about um, what individuals and hospitals can do. I think there's going to be a certainly a heightened awareness of the population about the transmission of communicable diseases 
especially those that are airborne and surface contact uh, transmission. So uh, I don't want everybody to become germaphobic in the sense that they won't touch anything <laughs> like the doorknob, but uh, perhaps they'll be more aware about, you know, sneezing, coughing, transmitting aerosols, uh, to one another. Some people practice those, uh, those hygienic uh, principles. Others don't. I think we're going to see, we could maybe do a better job with sort of sanitizing things that we may have contaminated. If we're ill, maybe we'll be staying home more, uh, and not transmitting diseases, especially, uh, during, a, an epidemic or pandemic, even of the flu or, other viruses uh, that are passing through a community. There'll be a new awareness, alertness, and responsiveness in the population. I think the same sort of thing will happen in healthcare, where mm. during the flu season, for example, we'll be very, very cautious about uh, this sort of thing. Even though we've had infection control uh, measures in hospitals, in uh, medical practices, Often those uh, laps, people just kind of get a little accustomed to not necessarily doing all of them. Uh, again, the awareness will, will be raised among healthcare professionals. They'll, they'll take them more seriously. I think we're going to see improvement uh, in those areas of the simple hygienic measures. I mean, we, we just can't all disappear under rocks for months at a time to avoid infection. It's going to keep coming back. Right. This infection, COVID, will keep recurring. We're going to see it, whether it's seasonal or it's perennial, it'll keep recurring. Uh, will it mutate uh, into different strains that we need new immunity for? We don't know that. You know, we should have a vaccine. Uh, hopefully they'll be effective. Maybe we'll have to be vaccinated every year like we are for the flu. But certainly new viruses uh -huh. are going to come through. And we just can't ha hide under rocks and have total economic chaos and, and financial ruin uh, every time uh, some pandemic comes through. But these hygienic measures, if we really take them seriously, if we we take these things very seriously from the very beginning when when we first know about them, I think we'll do a lot better in the future because we'll have a lot more certainty about what we need to do and we'll know what the consequences can be and we don't want to suffer those consequences. Yeah, all really good points. It's, it's funny you're kind of talking about, um, you know, infection control procedures in particular because you think about it today and in a doctor's office waiting room or an ER waiting room, you're not separating the, the sick and contagious from the injured, but the well or the well population in general, right? So I do wonder if you'll see a, a, more of a, we take your temperature and then you either sit in this waiting room or this waiting room or even, you know, more advanced, could healthcare go the way of restaurants where they text you stay in your car or somewhere else and they text you when they're ready for you to come in and you go straight to the doctor's office or wherever you need to be. So 
I'd be curious if you, if when you say infection control procedures, are those the kinds of things you're thinking about, or are you thinking about even other steps? Well, I'm thinking, you know, those are all good points. Uh, I'm thinking of the simple things like the hand washing between patients yep. that doesn't always go on. Yep. Wearing gloves that hasn't been <laughs> going on. I go into doctors' offices and there's no hand sanitizer on the counters. Now there are. And I think think there are going to be hand sanitizers for patients everywhere. Your point about the doctor's office and the waiting rooms, think about it. You have sick people and healthy people mixed together. And lots of those, I mean, non-acutely ill patients, a lot of people in the doctor's office are very chronically ill with chronic disease, highly vulnerable to uh, mortality and adverse consequences from infectious disease. And they're there not for an acute problem, not for an infection, but other people are there for some serious infections. It could be communicable. We've never separated them. Mm-hmm. And so we're putting those sick people at risk for infectious disease by not considering people who are there for their infection. So. Excellent point. Mm-hmm. Something's got to happen. Uh, different places in the waiting room. Maybe a waiting room design will now be set up for separate rooms to wait for sick and healthy. I remember 30, 40 years ago, our pediatrician's office separated sick children from well children in their offices. So, uh, that's a great idea. I think many things are going to come from this similar to those, but we're going to do a whole lot more just normal sanitary stuff like coughing into the, uh, the uh, bend of your elbow, sneezing there, or, or making sure you have a tissue or washing your hands or sanitizing your hands and surfaces. Staying home when you're sick. So many people go to work when they're sick. We're, we're going to have to change some of that. And, you know, this remote workplace thing might actually, this is really going to be a good thing because if I'm a little sick and I've got some low-grade fever, but I'm not incapacitated, I could work from home if I had the, uh, the connections. So I could work remotely. And I think this... A lot of employers have been reluctant uh, out of fear that they are not going to be able to supervise their employees. They lose productivity. And if I remember correctly, I uh, recall correctly, I read some information that studies have shown uh, greater productivity at home. But you've got to have the, the tools to use at home. You've got to have the business set up for that. And the employee has to make sure that they are not distracted by what goes on in their home. And I'm very much aware of that because I'm challenged with that all the time because most of my, most of my work is done at home. So it's really uh, difficult to shut out those distractions of the home environment. Mm. Sure. Makes sense. Shifting a little bit. So with your coding and documentation expertise, um, I was a little bit surprised in some ways how quickly 
the coding bodies and CMS acted in terms of creating a COVID specific code and getting that put into place. I think originally it was, oh, we're not sure, just use the, you know, use some temporary emergency codes and and things like that. But, you know, within a matter of about a month and a half, they got a code through, got it in the system, updated all the groupers, et cetera. Was that fairly quick in your mind? And, and if so, what do you, why do you think they did that much more quickly than maybe they've made other coding changes historically? You know, I've never experienced anything quite like this in the, uh, in the coding world where uh, something like this arose so suddenly and unexpectedly within weeks to a couple of months. And we, we had to have immediately some method of reporting these things so we could collect data about it. Just think of reporting these as unspecified viral infections or unspecified (laughs) coronavirus, you know, just good Lord. Now, we did have some of that with the Ebola and SARS-1, but it wasn't so widespread, so nobody noticed it. Uh, A lot of this is driven by the World Health Organization, who is the custodian of the international ICD-10. And ours is a modification, but ours is, to some extent, they're they're not very, they're not, we have a whole lot of differences, let's say. But the WHO told us we had to wait for a, a, a code to use that was specific for this, very specific for this virus until the WHO came up with one. And the U code that's being used now is the one the WHO uh, assigned it. And so the whole world used that. And that's the only way to do it because the whole world needs to be reporting it the same way so we can comp- collect and compare data. So, uh, I think we were waiting on that. In the meantime, we were reporting uh, other other coronavirus other than the SARS-1. This is SARS-2, um, in essence. But uh, we reported other coronavirus infection, and it was just going to be assumed, I think, that we don't really report or identify other any other types of coronavirus infections in humans, although we do have them, we don't even test for them because they don't do all this. Uh-huh. But uh, as soon as we had that WHO code, then that was immediately implemented. And the speed with which that happened was astounding. I mean, the encoders updated, getting all the information out, uh, everybody jumped on that, and that happened very quickly. And thank goodness it did, because we need accurate data uh, almost on a weekly basis. We need to know what's being reported uh, on this nationwide. Yeah, I actually think the White House, I believe Vice President Pence has now mandated that hospitals have to report their positive tests, their negative tests, and their their patients and also the details like did the patient have to be mechanically ventilated or not yada yada i think that's a nightly requirement right now i would guess at some point in the future that will become more like the standard you know core measures reporting where it's done more like quarterly 
Um, but I think right now that's nightly. So that was also interesting to see overnight the, the White House saying, OK, hospitals, whether that be via Excel, that's fine. But you have to provide these numbers to us now on an on a nightly basis. Yeah. And, and that's and the only way to report these things and analyze them today is with a code. You know, you've got to have a yep. number that a computer can understand. The computer is not going to be able to take the words or review the chart and say, okay, this is this, this is this. They used a ventilator. It's, it's all translated into a code. So those codes are critical for yep. gathering the data that allow us to know how to respond. Um, because think about the ventilator. Now, the ventilator gets reported on a hospitalization because there's a ventilator code is a procedure, so we know that. Yep. But we got to be able to trend ventilator use, not just uh-huh. what capacity do we still have that, you know, how many are in the warehouse, but what's, what's the, what's the curve, you know, the trajectory, that's a popular word. What's the trajectory uh-huh. of use of ventilators up, down, what's going on. So how many more might we need soon? Thank goodness we've been able to control the, uh, in almost all places, New York being a notable exception. We've been able to control the spread of virus so the healthcare system has had time to respond. In fact, we have great excess capacity in most of the country for hospital beds, intensive care beds, and for ventilators right now. And that's because uh-huh. we stopped so many admissions. People don't want to come to the hospital. They're avoiding hospitals. They don't want to be near them. That's not necessarily a bad tendency, but taken to this extreme can cause big trouble. Uh, I don't like to be in a hospital. My, my message was people get sick in the hospital. <laughs> Just look at the people who are there. But... Um, uh-huh. You know we're we're in pretty good shape right now. Uh, New New York City is obviously uh, a, a very tragic uh, exception. When you think about so this may or may not be a, a question you're comfortable answering, and if not, that's totally fine. But you know you mentioned at the beginning, and I th- I think um, very very truthfully, the general consensus is the population most affected by this is older with a lot of underlying comorbid conditions. True. One of the things I've been slightly surprised, and and maybe because now is not the right time, but is that this hasn't led to more discussion around lifestyle and habits, right? Because part of, I think, the, the population that's generally getting affected is you've seen all the information that says they have hypertension, they have diabetes, they have, you know... Um, heart problems, they have COPD. And I'm surprised the public health experts, and maybe they will, and I'd be curious your take, are not using this as a chance to say the way we protect ourselves better as a population from these things moving forward is to adapt a healthier lifestyle and to not rely on medication to solve all of our acute problems. Um, I'd be curious if you have a perspective on that. You know, that's a that's a very great observation. Uh, and I think that, uh, like you said, this is 
not the right time for that because we're mm -hmm. in an acute emergency crisis and that's a long-term chronic solution uh, that uh, perhaps we can take advantage of later. I'm very pessimistic, though, that uh, people who have these problems are actually going to change their behavior because of this. For example, mm -hmm. who, uh, smokers are very high risk. I mean, even a young, healthy person who smokes a pack of cigarettes a day for has done so for 15 or 20 years is going to have a much higher risk than somebody who doesn't smoke, even if they're older. And mm -hmm. so you hear about young people dying from COVID, but you don't hear what their risk factors were. Uh, so, but smokers have known for decades that smoking causes lung cancer. Uh, the most common cancer that occurs in the country. Smoking causes heart disease and heart attacks, and they still smoke. I mean, those things are, are more, more dangerous together than uh, COVID infection to these people. So I don't see how COVID's going to motivate them if cancer and heart, heart disease and premature death from those things didn't. I guess COVID, you know, kills you right now. And these other things kill you later and you think it won't happen to me. But I'm All pessimistic right. uh, on that end. Same thing goes, you know, people who are obese and don't exercise, they get diabetes. Uh, the large majority of diabetics uh, would not require any treatment and could probably normalize their sugar if they normalize their weight and got exercise. So uh, I'm just not sure that we're, we're going to see people comply with those chronic illnesses when the emergency is gone and begins to sort of fade from memory. That's my pessimistic view. I wish I could be more optimistic <laughs> about it than that. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it is, it's definitely a very multifactorial, complex challenge. Human behavior is very complex. Yes, that's a understatement for sure. Um, maybe trying to kind of end on a somewhat positive note, are there things that you think coming out of this, either the healthcare system or we as individuals, um, will have learned or will change that will make us better moving forward. Yeah, I do think, I do think uh, that will happen and is already happening uh, for some folks. I think uh, one thing this, this should do is this ought to be a, just an absolute perfect object lesson to everyone about the importance of vaccination because Right now, doesn't everybody want a vaccine for COVID so they won't get it? They're terrified that they're going to die at this mass extinction event. Okay, without, without vaccines, there wouldn't be mass extinction events. That's what the plague and smallpox and polio were all about. 
is these mass infections and vaccines are such a blessing and so effective. So maybe now we're going to see people go get their flu shots, get their uh, shingles vaccine, go get their pneumonia vaccinations. Maybe we're going to see some of these parents who for no reason, no sci- on no scientific grounds at all, don't want their children vaccinated because of some irrational fear of some consequence that the child might have. Or simply that, well, I got the flu shot and it made me sick. I'm not going to have another one. Give me a break. You didn't die from it. You know, you just had the expected inflammatory reaction that some people have, and it was very short-lived. You probably didn't have to stop going to work. So I think we're going to maybe, I hope this will clearly be an object lesson that will motivate vaccination. And boy, that's, I think that's the number one most important thing we learn and from this. There are many other things in terms of what people do. We talked about some of the hygienic uh, behaviors, but I think that could be a real blessing. Right now, I learned that we're the children are suffering because the doctors aren't getting them in and parents aren't taking children for their routine vaccines. That is a big worry because if they don't get those things. Are we going to start seeing pandemics of measles and mumps and German measles and all these other things that that we had under control? Uh, mm-hmm. So we, we we need to be focusing on children's vaccinations right now and not let this COVID. We don't want this to be an unintended consequence of uh social distancing, that we distance our children from their vaccinations. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation, and I sincerely appreciate your perspective. Anything else you'd like to share with the audience or kind of leave us with as your thoughts on kind of maybe learnings or um, uh, just things we should know? Well, I think we kind of covered uh, most of those things. Uh, I think one very important thing is that Uh, hospitals, uh, that local governments and municipalities and and at the national level, we now sort of stay prepared for uh, healthcare disasters, these infectious pandemics, because we may see more of them in the future. Um, I think we will. And I think some of the things we're doing right now to prepare, to try to get prepared, to try to deal with it are going to be object lessons, again, uh, that teach us uh, what to do. Maybe we'll even have some sort of uh, national strategic reserve of uh, ventilators, of healthcare supplies, of other equipment that might be needed in the case of another pandemic. Uh, and find ways that we don't have to shut, you know, have some plans for reacting quickly, uh, both in locality and on national level, so to be implemented immediately if it looks like there's a pandemic coming so we don't have to go to this shut-in situation where social distancing can be some of those conservative measures we, we saw, like staying six feet apart and wearing masks and those kind of things. So that's as far as we have to go. I can't think of much else to to contribute. You've been very thorough in your in your questioning. So thank you very much. 
Wonderful, Dr. Pinson. Well, again, we sincerely appreciate your insights here. I think we've all learned something today and, and look forward to continuing to hear from you in the future. Well, thanks for asking me to participate. I appreciate it very much.